welcome to um, Big Questions number two in the series. Thank you so much for coming back. If you um, were here last week, it's great to see you again. It's also great to see a number of uh, new faces. You probably know by now, because you're either a regular here or a guest, that these series of big questions are exactly what they say on the tin. We're posing five of the questions that people, we think people are asking at the moment. And um, everyone's welcome to come to one or some or all of the series. So um, if you enjoy this evening and you decide to come back, just drop me an email. My email's on the back of the um, flyer, I think. I think there are some flyers on the um, table behind that pillar there. And we'd love to have you. I said last week that um, a few preliminary comments are important. The first is that I'm not the most intelligent person in this room. I know that. You probably know that if you were here last week. The second is it's not a point-scoring exercise. Um, we are trying to initiate conversations here. And I'm going to speak now for just over 20 minutes on this topic of is it arrogant to claim that Jesus is the only way or that one worldview is correct. And I'm going to speak in such a way as to try and resource your table conversations. So after my talk, there'll be a free-for-all discussion around your tables and then after that, there'll be some open mic Q&A. And if you have any questions springing from your table discussions for that Q&A, just write them down and raise a hand, and I'll come and pick them up, and we shall seek to answer them during that time. Failing that, just raise a hand in the air during that time, and we'll seek to answer the questions. Quite a few questions last week on how the Bible was put together, the different books of the Bible chosen, the canonization of Scripture, and I have posted on the St. Michael's Facebook account an article you might be interested in reading, if that was your question. And if you're not a friend of St. Michael's in that formal Facebook way, you can find that link um, just by going on the St. Michael's homepage, and the link's just right there in the middle of the homepage. So that could be useful for some. Anyway, this evening's topic, the only God, is it arrogant to claim only one worldview is correct? Singularity and multiplicity, or the one and the many. And that combination of things pose a very thorny contemporary question for us on all sorts of levels. When there are many ethnicities or sexualities or languages or eating habits, dare I say it this evening, or religions or worldviews, when is it right, is it ever right to say that one of them is superior to all of the others? That only one is the best, or to sharpen that a little bit, that only one of them is true, right, and good. Is it ever right to say that? Well, you might be thinking, if you're a thinking listener, surely it depends which category of thing we are talking about. It's one thing to limit where people can smoke, like Tony Blair's New Labour did, or to consider taxing sugar, like Cameron's government are thinking about doing, because we recognize those may not be the best things to fill our bodies with. But it is quite another thing, is it not, to rule that one ethnicity, for example, is superior over every other. Now, as I say that, it should send a shiver down our spine. And uh, that way lies so-called ethnic cleansing and genocide and the Nazi so-called solution. So it depends on the category, surely. But the question before us today is how we deal with this question of uh, one and the many. 
in the area of religion and spirituality. Now, if you live in London, I guess all of us probably do, we live in a city of 8.5 million people. Of those in the 2011 census, 48% self-identified as Christian. Now, can I say as a vicar in the Church of England, the churches around this country do not see 48% of the population coming in every Sunday. So most of those will have been nominal people who are panicked into ticking a box other than Jedi and Christian looked the most reasonable. But even if we take that figure of 48%, they are a minority in this city and in this country. And besides them, there are six other main world religions with many adherents, maybe some in this room, and many of whom are utterly sincere in their beliefs and utterly devoted to their lifestyles. So the question is this, is it arrogant to claim that the Christian God is the only God and that Jesus is the only way to him in that cultural context, mixed as it is? Let me begin by saying that specificity, being specific about things, is not inherently unloving. Imagine, if you can stretch your imagination this far, that you and I were to agree to meet for a coffee. Can you imagine that? Imagine that I say, I can't think of any better way to spend my Saturday afternoon than to have a macchiato with you. But then imagine I get all vague on you. You ask for a time. You say, yeah, John, I'm game for that. Um, what time would you like to meet? I say, well, I'm flexible any time. Great, you say. Uh, how about 3 p.m.? I frown and I say, no, 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 no. I, I, I think 3 p.m. is so restrictive. It's, it's so difficult. I'd prefer to meet at any time if that's okay with you. Now, you thought I was odd anyway because I'm a vicar, but now you're really beginning to wonder. You push on regardless. Okay, well, let's find a location. We'll try and nail that one down. How about the Pret on Horse Ferry Road? They do a cheap Americano. No, I say, um, I prefer not to talk about locations. That's a bit restrictive. I prefer to keep my options open. Let's meet anywhere. Well, by now, you may well be beginning to wonder whether I really want to meet you at all. Because this meeting lacks all the necessary specifics. No location, no time equals no macchiato in any pret you choose to imagine. Now, it's a silly story. It's a thinly veiled allegory, but it makes a point. Being specific is good. Life would be a total mess without specifics. Now, sure, the specific details are only as useful and as loving as they are true, if I'd given you the wrong time and location, that would have been deceitful and unloving. But specificity in itself is not inherently unloving. The key question is not whether the specifics, whether there are specifics or not. The key question is whether they are true or not. We'll come back to that. Let's begin thinking about this question by thinking about pluralism. And I'm going to focus on pluralism because it is a very prevalent worldview in our day and age. Pluralism, if you, you don't know, it says that all religions are equally valid because all truth is equally valid. So Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, they all lead to God. Uh, you may have come across this idea in the famous story of the elephant in the room, which is not a way of talking about public awkwardness. It's actually a fable. And in that story, 
uh, it is imagined that all the religious views in the world are personified as scribes, and the scribes are blindfolded. One of them is holding the elephant's tail, and uh, he or she is saying, I think what I'm feeling is a rope. And the next one's holding the elephant's uh, leg and saying, no, I think it's a tree trunk. Next one's holding the uh, elephant's trunk and saying, no, I think it's a snake. Now, in actual fact, they're all describing one part of the ultimate whole, but none of them can see the whole. It's a parable for pluralism. There are many ways to the ultimate reality, God. The religions are like the scribes. They're all kind of useful make a contribution of sorts, but they're not completely right. But I want to argue that pluralism is profoundly misguided. Firstly, that it's patronizing. Secondly, that it's alarmist. And thirdly, that it's incoherent. Firstly, patronizing. I want to say that patronizing, uh, pluralism is patronizing because it asks us to believe something which patently cannot be true. Now, there are some things in life over which we can disagree with one another, and those things can be equally true at the same time. We call those subjective things. If I say, for example, that triathlon is obviously the best sport in the world, and you say, no, 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 I think football is the best sport in the world, there's a real sense in which both of us are right to a certain degree. Triathlon is right for me through some weird twisted means, and football is right for you through some weird twisted means. It's subjective. It's a matter of opinion, and, you know, that's fine. But that is not the case for things of science or history, for example. I'm not a scientist. I'm told the speed of light is 1,080 kilometers per second. That is non-negotiable, as many people taking their physics GCSE find to their cost. If we were to say it's 2,000 kilometers per second, we wouldn't get those valuable two marks. Similarly, if I were to say that the D-Day landings happened in January 1930, I might get an effort grade for that, but I would not get the full marks for correctness. It happened on the 5th of June 1944. Now, some people think that Christianity is a bit more like your favorite sport than history or science, a thing that is subjective purely. A hobby, granted a bit of an odd hobby, unless you really like organ music. No offense, Tom Bell, who's here, who's our organist. Uh, Stained glass windows and big, old, often drafty buildings. But it's not a subjective claim. It makes objective claims to be historical Christianity. That's what we saw last week. The Gospels, the first-hand eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the book of Acts in the New Testament, they all self-identify as historical documents. They all claim that a guy called Jesus from a place called Nazareth walked around some square mileage in a place called Palestine roughly 2,000 years ago. And he worked miracles, and he taught things that really made sense of the world, and he died, and he rose again from the dead. And we're going to focus on his person in the penultimate one of these talks, look at his resurrection in particular. But that kind of claim, surely that kind of claim has to either be true or untrue. It is not a preferential thing. It cannot be true for me or true for you only, universally true or universally false. Now, I happen to think there is overwhelming evidence for its truth, as we saw last week. Do listen to the talk. It's 
online, I think, if you're interested. But the claims of the Bible backed up by archaeology, extra-biblical historians and writers, things like onomastics, which we discovered was the study of historical names, or religio-geographical research looking at the distribution of things like sycamore fig trees. I think there are all sorts of things which corroborate with the truth of the Bible's claims. But the point for now is that these claims must be universally true or universally false. Let's take a little example. The fact that Jesus died on the cross is crucial to Christianity. He died there to earn forgiveness for those who trust in him. That's the claim. But Islam, for example, denies that Jesus died at all. In Islam, Jesus is just a prophet, and it would be unthinkable for Allah to allow one of his prophets to die like that. So they deny that Jesus died on the cross. Some of them think that Judas Iscariot looked similar to Jesus, and in some kind of kind of gruesome mix-up, he was crucified instead of Jesus. Now, quite apart from which view is right, we have to make our own minds up on that. But can you see that both cannot be right at the same time? They are diametrically opposed to one another. So pluralism says they can be true at the same time. I want to say that's patronizing. It patently cannot be true. Secondly, pluralism is alarmist. Alarmist. I think the reason that many intelligent people like you, because flattery gets you everywhere, many intelligent people are drawn to pluralism is that we worry that disagreement is inherently dangerous. That if we admit that different religions fundamentally disagree, then somehow we will all buy guns and kill each other in a huge religious hoedown. But that's not necessarily the case, is it? Personally, I tend to cycle everywhere in London, so I'm pretty bad with the tube. The other day, I got the northern line in the wrong direction. I went south instead of north. Now, I think it was an understandable mistake to make. I mean, the trains look the same. It's a black line, north and south, and who knew that the northern line actually goes south anyway? But imagine that as I got onto that train, I begin to chat to someone, and I know that is a stretch of the imagination. No one talks on the tube. Imagine I began to chat to someone about how excited I was to be heading to Waterloo that particular morning, and who wouldn't be excited about that? And they gently put me right. And they let me know that actually, unbeknownst to me, I'm heading for a place no one's heard of called Morden. And that's tough news for anyone to stomach at the best of times. We disagree. I think this train is heading for Morden. She thinks it's going, sorry, I think it's going to Waterloo. She thinks it's going to Morden. But here's the thing. What happens next? We do not need to get into a violent altercation. No one pulls a knife out. All that's happening is disagreement about where we're going. We just have to work out who's right, wait for the tannoy announcement or the next station. In actual fact, I was quite grateful. I got off the train immediately. It is possible to disagree respectfully, even when our views are held very sincerely indeed. Indeed, I have to say that I have had lots of robust conversations with atheists, for example, or agnostics who really should be called atheists, and I've ended up being great friends with them. They fill my phone book. They're great friends. We don't have to agree in order to be polite and to love one another. So pluralism, patronizing, alarmist, finally arrogant. 
Sometimes Christians are labeled as arrogant to say that we know the truth with the capital T. That's why we chose this title for this evening. And I want to say on a serious note, perhaps you have had a run-in with Christians who are bigoted and who are arrogant. They do exist. Can I apologize for that if that has been your experience? But it is not necessarily arrogant to say that you have the truth. Just the same accusation could be thrown at the pluralist. In the fable of the elephant in the room with the scribes, have you ever asked yourself where the narrator of the story is standing? He or she is the only one who is not blindfolded and who can see the whole truth. He or she is arrogant enough to say that Muhammad, Krishna, Buddha, Jesus, Moses are all blind and all wrong. Indeed, not only is pluralism arrogant, but it's incoherent on a logical level. It says that there is no absolute truth apart from the fact that there is no absolute truth, which in itself is a claim to absolute truth. Or that all religions are the same apart from pluralism, which in itself is a totalizing universal truth claim that everyone must hold to. Can you see that those claims are intellectually incoherent? Now, let's consider Christianity itself. First things first, rather like our imagined conversation on the tube, Morden or Waterloo, we need to work out in what direction this world is pointing and the intellectual credibility of the Christian scriptures, traditions, and worldview. Do listen to the talk from last week if that's your question. But subsequent to that, we need to consider tonight's accusation of arrogance and exclusivity. And on that, the more I read about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the more extraordinary I find him to be. Don't you find what he chooses to do on earth utterly extraordinary? I mean, just think for a moment, if God did exist, and if that God came down to earth, what do you think his experience should or would be like? What would you expect? I would have expected it to be a load of ticker tape parades fading into eulogies and heavenly concerts and adoration and worship from all of humanity. I'd expect this building not to be big enough for those concerts. But that wasn't the case for the Lord Jesus Christ. Sure, people were amazed by his teaching and amazed by his miracles, and and rightly so, but they really gave him the cold shoulder in quite a significant way as well. They persecuted him. They laughed at him. They wrongly convicted him of crimes he didn't commit. They tortured him and they killed him. And let me say, that is a stunning surprise to me. You've all got Bibles in the back of your your chairs. I wonder if you wouldn't mind just getting them out. I thought we'd just look at one incident that occurs in John's Gospel. You'll find it on page um, 1081. 1081. I just thought it would be useful for you to have a look at what I'm reading to make sure I'm not misreading it. Page 1081. This is the night before Jesus is going to die, and he does something which sheds light on why he's going to die. I'm going to read chapter 13, big 13, uh, verses 1 to 9. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. 
The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel round his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, one of his disciples, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Now, I don't know whether you're a feet washer. I I sincerely hope you wash your own feet and on a regular basis. But have you ever washed someone else's feet? I haven't. And it's an unpleasant task, I take it. In in, in Jesus' day, it would have been a much more unpleasant task in that dusty, sandal-wearing culture. Something that only the lowliest of servants in a household would do. So that in itself I find amazing enough, that Jesus would do that. But it's the logic of verses 3 to 4 which really get me. Were you struck by that? It is precisely because Jesus knew that the Father had poured all things under his power that he washes the disciples' feet. It is precisely because Jesus knows that he is God that he did the lowliest, the muckiest, the nastiest task of washing people's feet. In other words, Jesus chooses to do this self-consciously as God. In other words, it is not an act of arrogance. To the contrary, I want to suggest tentatively it is the ultimate act of ultimate divine humility. The disciples, we're told, will only later understand what he's doing because it is a picture, so the claim goes, of what Jesus will do the next day as he dies on the cross. It is a claim that Jesus, when he died, died to wash the dirt of our moral muddiness away. And can I say that is the core of the Christian message. Jesus died so that anyone, whatever they've done or not done, could be washed on the inside and forgiven. That is why, besides being an act of humility, it's an act of necessity for Peter here and indeed for all of us to receive. Do you see what Jesus says to Peter in verse 8? Unless I wash you, unless I forgive you, you have no part with me. So it's a very specific act. I suppose, in a sense, it's exclusive. Only Jesus is offering it. I could call that bigoted, I suppose. But look at the act. The act in itself is the ultimate act of humility. I want to say specificity is not inherently unloving. Indeed, this kind of specificity is inherently, I would suggest, loving. And can I say that is unique to Christianity? Only Jesus offers full and free forgiveness to broken, morally muddy people like me. In Islam, I'm told two angels follow you around, one good, one bad. They record all of my deeds. And on the last day of judgment, Allah, although we're told he is merciful, he tends to go with the reports of the angels. So Muslims, and you can understand this, are driven by fear 
of never being good enough, never making the grade, need to pray five times a day, need to make it to Mecca. Similar in Hinduism, where we're constantly trying to live a good life, to try and spiral upwards in reincarnation, get good karma. Same in Buddhism, where only the best achieve enlightenment. Same in some twisted versions of Christianity, can I say, where it's all about the ritual and the routine. But Jesus is different because he comes to wash us. And that is unique. He comes to do everything necessary for us to be spiritually clean. So, as we close, here's the thing. Forgiven people simply cannot be arrogant people. I want to suggest that religion as a man-made set of rules to get us to God will always breed arrogance. Because religion of that sort always involves me by being, being saved by adhering to a certain set of lifestyle rules. And if I adhere to them and you don't adhere to them, I will look down my nose at you. In my mind, it makes me big and it makes you small. But Christianity has very different blood flowing through its veins. And you may want to ask more about this in the Q&A time. But a Christian is someone who simply has been washed by Jesus on the inside. Someone who's morally muddy. I was saying when I gave this talk a couple of days ago elsewhere, I find my job as a preacher and as a vicar actually quite humbling and humiliating sometimes because if I was to summarize, my job is to say, I am morally muddy, but I know someone who cleaned me. Can we see then that being forgiven leaves no space for me to be arrogant? And that is the case for every Christian around the world. Now, we saw last week that evidence is not the problem. There's plenty of evidence for Jesus in the gospel accounts. Do ask more on that if you'd like. We've seen today that arrogance is not the problem in him, may I suggest. It does, however, demand a certain level of humility to come to Jesus and to say, I recognize I am morally muddy. Please, would you forgive me? Please clean me in that way. So I guess, in a way, today started off as a big question to leave at God's doorstep. But we're finishing off, and I want to suggest for your group discussions, it may leave us with a big question addressed to us. Are we being arrogant, or are we humble enough to come to the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, next week, love to see you again if you're keen to come. There's plenty of space. We're looking at the idea of suffering and a good, all-powerful, all-knowing God and how the two can fit together. It'll take us deeper into this story. Love to see you. But for now, I'm going to hand over to you guys on the tables. Free-for-all discussion. Write down questions. We'd love to have them for the open mic Q&A. Over to you. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Sorry to um, ask you to draw your discussions to a close. Looks like there's some great conversations going on. Um, just before we dive into um, the first submitted question, are there any other questions that have been written down that I can gather up now? No? Okay, we do have one question here, but do please, um, if you have even the inkling of a question, I really would encourage you to um, voice it out for the common good, because that's why we're here. I mean, it's really helpful, even if you think, okay, is this just some peculiar thing? I'm thinking the likelihood is probably not. Um, so if you do have even half a question, will you please consider speaking up so that we can all um, benefit? Okay, so first question um, is... What beliefs would you say might make a version of Christianity twisted? 
thank you very much for that question, which I think came from this table over here. It's like a raffle. Um, great. I, I mentioned some twisted version of Christianity. That was probably my way of mentioning it. I think my simple answer to that would be any version of Christianity which changes what is made explicit in the Bible, and most particularly anything which changes any of the core beliefs of the Bible. You then want to ask, what are those core beliefs? I'd want to turn to somewhere like 1 Corinthians 15, where the Apostle Paul says, here are the things I received of first importance, and they are the things of first importance for the Christianity holding together. I'll just say a little bit more on that. There are some things in Scripture which give breadth for belief, so very well known is kind of baptism, and whether it's right to baptize children or adults, is it okay to baptize a child? There's all sorts of debate that goes on about that in kind of geeky theological circles, and I think you find... Um, currency for both views in the Bible. And therefore, my conclusion is that there is a legitimate breadth of practice across that. But where people begin to revise what is made clear in Scripture, and people may want to come back to me as to how easy that is to discern, that is where I would say it becomes twisted. And specifically things which would distort the things of first importance where salvation, cross, death, resurrection of Jesus become distorted. Do you want to come back to me on that? Or? Thank you. I'm going to go around with this microphone. So who has a question? Ben. We just had a little debate here, and I think the question was raised, is evangelism arrogant? Where Christians are trying to evangelize to those that may not be Christians? Mm. Um, I don't know what you would expect me to say. I, someone once said, and I couldn't tell you who said it, but Google could probably tell us, that evangelism or, or telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ is a bit like one beggar trying to tell another beggar where to find bread. And I find that a helpful analogy. I suppose to change the metaphor, um, I would say it's a bit like one muddy, morally muddy person who's been washed saying... I got washed by this guy. Do you want to come and get washed too? And if I was a hungry beggar or if I recognized that I was morally muddy, then I think I'd be quite grateful. Um, it becomes difficult when people don't think they're morally muddy or don't hunger for that kind of bread, to use both metaphors. But I'm convinced, and I would say that every Christian would need to be convinced in order to be a Christian, that Christ offers the most wonderful things. And we'll, we'll talk about next week that he offers a future which is protected from suffering, mourning, crying, pain, for example. And if we believe that, then I would say, to turn the question on its head, it would actually be, be the most profoundly unloving thing not to tell those I love about, about him. So, so that, maybe you'd expect me to say that, but I think that bears itself out in integrity within the Christian faith. Um, it's not to say that it's not often done badly. Sorry about the double negative. Um, you know, Christians often will try and ram it down someone's throat or be oppressive with that or try and legislate that people have to convert. That has happened sometimes in history, although nowhere in the world today. So I'm not saying it's never been abused, but I am saying done in the right, respectful, listening, conversational way, I think it's actually a, a natural thing with integrity. I don't know whether the table wants to come back to me on that. Other questions, perhaps on some other aspect 
of the talk. I mean, John has pretty much started from the premise that we are living in a society where pluralism is the prevalent worldview, is the worldview we, we come across. Yep, Barnaby. just occurred to me I didn't share it in the group but it's a, just a quick question um, if you don't mind answering it um, do you think there's any kind of arrogance in um, with Christians in terms of the the different denominations in churches uh, I, I think there, I think there can be I think there can be certainly um, I myself believe that Anglicanism rightly understood is a very good if not I think the best formulation of what I find in the Bible um, but that would not mean that I would look down my nose at those who are Baptists or Presbyterians or, or others at all. I think there can be, but um, certainly I don't find that too often. I think what I, what I love to see is unity right across the board to say, you know, we're Christians, whatever denomination we come from. Yeah. Thanks, Martin. Anyone else? That'd be fine if that, if that is just it. Charlie's got one. got a, a two-parter here, if that's okay. Uh, first one, you mentioned muddiness, this idea of being morally muddy. Um, so the first question, like, who says people are muddy? And the second half of that, if we're all morally, morally muddy, what's the problem? Aren't we all kind of much of a muchness? Great question. I suppose the answer to that, and I, I will flesh that out in future talks, um, so that's a little sort of caveat. But the answer to that in a nutshell is that I would say as a Christian, and the reason I said that in this talk, is that the God of the Bible tells us that we're morally muddy. And as he tells us that, it corroborates with what our consciences tell us. Um, so actually, the standard for moral cleanliness, often um, people would say, uh, I'm morally passable or, or, or good. I'm not as good as Mother Teresa but I'm a pretty nice guy or girl. I'm not as bad as Hitler. And if we were forced to put a line somewhere, uh, what, what is good enough, I find it remarkable the number of times that that line is drawn just underneath where that person happens to view themselves to be. Um, actually, when we read the Bible, that God, in his loving honesty to us, shows us a mirror and asks us to look into it. And he says, who are you, John, in private who are you, not just in your outward behavior, but in your thoughts? When you do good things, which are good, why do you do those things? What are your motivations? And the more I look in that mirror, personally speaking, the more I find I see someone who is not actually as good as I would have once thought, and not as good as many people might think, looking at me from the outside. And I found that to be a wonderfully freeing thing. Because I've begun to realize that the God who tells me here that he loves me, the God who tells me that he can wash me on the inside, is at one and the same time the God who sees me as I really am, in private and in my thought life. And I find that a really, really wonderful thing. But we'll say, say more about that as we go on. Charlie, remind me, I'm a goldfish. What's the second part? Um, if we're all in the same boat, you kind of answered it with that comparison with Mother Teresa. Like, what's the, what's the implication or what's the problem? Yeah. Well, I think if we're all in the same boat, we've got to all be asking the same question. You know, who is good enough? Who is good enough? Now, lots of people 
kind of grow up with schoolboy religion, and they think that chapel and chaplains and vicars are all saying, pull up your socks and be a good boy or girl. Actually, Orthodox Christianity, correctly understood down the ages, has only ever said what I said earlier. Um, I am morally muddy, and I've been washed. I can tell you where to get washed as well. And that's why there's no place for arrogance. So I think the question, therefore, becomes universal, although many people on the street wouldn't recognize that question. And then the answer becomes universally desirable in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, But again, I I wouldn't expect everyone here to agree with that. I think that's just the testimony of of the Bible. Any other questions? People want to come back on that? It's, it's like an auction. If someone raises a hand, you, you, you buy something. Yes, we do have time for one more question. Go ahead. Uh, sorry, it's this, uh, this table again. <laughs> um, I was just thinking, so, uh, so a level of arrogance often breeds sort of the idea of great leadership. Um, is there ever a case where you think arrogance can sit with leading people towards the Christian faith? Yeah, th- thank you, Mark. It's a great question. Do, do people hear that? Arrogance is often... Um, conflated with or associated with a good thing, which is strong leadership. In what sense can arrogance be a good, good thing, maybe particularly in leading people to faith? I would want to draw a distinction between confidence and arrogance, I think, probably. And if you, if you read one of these gospel accounts, John's Gospel, for example, um, you find someone who manages, and we'll look more at this in the penultimate talk in this series, someone who manages, I think, uniquely to combine humility with confidence someone who people naturally want to follow because he's confident, but he does not ram it down people's throats. He does not force his CV on other people, and no one would say that he's arrogant. Um, So I'd want to kind of draw a distinction there. And I suppose for me, giving these talks or chatting with my friends, with you, um, I would want to to pray that I would be confident, but certainly not arrogant. Yeah, and I think there's a a distinction. Thank you guys so much. Time is up. Oh, we've got one more. Should we, should we bend the rules? Yeah, go on. I just wanted to come back to the analogy of the elephant in the room. Yeah, please. We discussed a bit around our table. And you were insinuating that um, all the different religions were holding onto a different part of the elephant and claiming that the part that they were holding was the truth. Mm. And that um, in, I was um, potentially arrogant of them because they couldn't see the whole thing. But uh, you, you mentioned the main religions, Hinduism, Muslims, Christianity, and you mentioned Buddhism as well. We were discussing whether that was really a religion or just a philosophy, but are they all claiming that what they're holding is the truth? Or, or for example, the Buddhists, would they be saying, we, we, we don't know whether this is the truth or not, actually. Um, so they might be the least arrogant. No, that's a very helpful comment. I, I welcome that comment and, and question. I think in a way I would look at that and I would see that that reinforces what I was saying about the arrogance of pluralism. Pluralism takes a massive great fat steamroller and says you're all basically saying the same thing. Now we took the example of Islam and Christianity and and whether Jesus died or not. But certainly some of those religions would conflict on on even the most fundamental levels about whether there can be a capital T truth, for example, and whether they'd want to claim that. I'd want to say to the pluralists, can you see what a varied landscape we're looking at when we look at these different religions? How can you possibly say that they're agreeing? Um, on, on, the, on your point, you made a throwaway comment that maybe that religion is the most humble of them because it's not claiming a truth claim. I, w- I would say possibly. I guess I'd want to drill down and see 
is there cause for any truth claim? If there is a truth claim, for example, to go back to that silly illustration, if I am actually going to be at the Pret on Horse Ferry Road at 3 p.m., and someone is saying John may or may not be there, that's not humility, that's foolishness if they've been told. Um, so I'd want to draw a distinction between... I mean, I, often in postmodernism, people like the idea of confusion and sometimes conflate that with humility. A lot of my friends are um, agnostic, and they are permanent agnostics because they believe that holding on to any notion of any kind of truth is intrinsically arrogant. And I suppose what I was trying to do through the presentation earlier was dismantle that idea and say, if a truth, particularly if a truth has been revealed to us, and we talked about that last week in Christianity, in the, in the person of Lord Jesus Christ and through the giving of Scripture, then I'm not claiming that I worked it out. I'm not claiming to be a clever clogs and that I'm cleverer than you and please listen to my teaching. I'm just claiming I received this. What do you think? I think that can be a very humble way to hold out truth. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming, and we really must stop it there. It's 20 past nine. Sorry to run over slightly. Just to say, um, I'm going to plug this book again. The first chapter in it is particularly looking at this issue that we've been looking at this evening. Tim Keller is a very well-known best-selling apologist for the Christian faith. Tom Blake over there is going to man the bookstall. He's happy to guide you through any books you may want to buy or not. The prices are there. There's an honesty box. And uh, our events week as well. There are loads of flyers for various events. I think just behind the pillar where Mary Lois is leaning. And um, so they're ticketed, some of them. If you'd like to come, you're best to get in early. But have a browse, pick them up as you, as you leave. Thank you so much for coming. And please come back next week. If you haven't told me you come back next week, please email me for catering purposes. Thank you. <laughs>